We started in the beginning of December looking at the Gospel of Luke doing a countdown to Christmas, and I felt it would be appropriate just to continue on into the new year from the point in which we left off, which was verse 21 of chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke is one of the most fascinating of all of the four Gospels due to the fact that it was written by a Gentile who was a physician, and he had a unique manner of his investigation and also his recording of the events in which Jesus Christ fulfilled. He wrote it specifically to one individual with a certain intent in mind when doing so. That individual was named Theophilus, uh, an individual that many believe was a wealthy Greek individual who Luke served in his home as his personal physician. And when Luke became a Christian, it appears that Theophilus allowed Luke then to travel with the disciples to tend to them and their physical needs. As Luke traveled with the disciples, he recorded the things in which he saw the disciples accomplish. If you look at the book of Acts, you will discover that it will go from third person to first person, where he includes himself, where he will say, as you get to about Luke uh, Acts 12, I should say, where we were together in this city, and we saw these things happen, and we uh, experienced what the Lord had done, including himself in it. We know that he was a true companion to the Apostle Paul. In history, Luke was uh, revered highly by the disciples. Uh, He was well-liked by all. And he appears now to want to take all of the information in which has been gathering concerning the person of Jesus Christ and give a concise, uh, consistent narrative of everything that Jesus did up into his crucifixion, resurrection, and then everything the apostles did after his ascension in the book of Acts, for Luke is the author of both. And truly, it is a two-volume set that is really meant to be read one after the other. But in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, really 4, Luke makes it clear that his intent is this for the reader in which who reads the works in which he has compiled. And that was his hope that these works would bring certainty to the minds and the hearts of those who would read these things. He wanted to take any ambiguity, any doubt out of the equation by either the cause of the fragmentation of the number of accounts that have been uh, written and so forth and the confusion that they may have Uh, stirred in the mind of the individuals at that time. He wanted to erase that. He wanted also to solidify the oral tradition that uh, had been now being given from Jesus now to the point where people were reciting the things that Jesus said and uh, and they were repeating them and they were reciting them in a class or in a synagogue or, or such. And Luke wanted to make sure that what was being recited was what Jesus actually said. But his intent is this. He wanted to bring Theophilus to a place where he could come and feel certain of the events that had taken place. Certainty is greatly challenged because of our position today of being 2,000 years removed from the events that originally took place. 
It is difficult, and we would be greatly challenged by those who are opposed to Christianity when we would say that we are certain of these events. However, though, when Luke was writing, many of the individuals who he is writing to and reading his writings for themselves saw the actual events for themselves. And therefore, he does not contend with the time span, the time gap that you and I do. And therefore, I raise the argument as this. If Theophilus can be certain in his time by the writings of Luke, why can't we be certain by the writings of Luke also 2,000 years removed? If they were true then, they're true today. Does it make sense? That's the vantage point in which we'll look at this gospel from together. And we've made our way through chapter 2 and through verse 21. Jesus has now been born. The eighth day he was circumcised and, of course, given the name Jesus in which the angel had prescribed for him that God is our salvation, Joshua, so forth. And between verses 21 and 22, there is a gap of about 30 days. And we come now to the time of the necessity for Mary now to present her offerings in the temple for her personal purification. Now, purification in the Bible does not necessarily equate a purification from sin, but a purification from uncleanliness. It is wrong to determine that every form of uncleanliness was necessarily due to sin, and this is one of those occasions. Mary has had a child, and the Old Testament tells us in the book of Leviticus that after a child is born, that the woman is unclean for 30 days if she has given birth to a male. At the end of those 30 days, she is then able to come and to offer sacrifices to indicate that she has now waited and observed those 30 days of uncleanliness, and now she has been uh, deemed cleansed by the priest and allowing her now to go on to have physical intimacy with her husband and looked upon favorably and allowed to be entered at the temple and, and other places of worship. If she was to give birth to a girl, unfortunately, she would have to wait 60 days because we know what a mess they create, right? No, I'm, have it with God. It's not me, guys, okay? I just, but this is the point in which we come to this morning and as we begin here in verse 22, as we ramp this up, we are going to discover that on their way to the temple, which appears now that they have remained in Bethlehem uh, for the 30 days waiting for that time of purification to end, which would make sense. This would allow for the return of the Magi and so forth. Uh, this would also give us the, the timeline uh, correction to allow us that time. Uh, Bethlehem was only about seven miles away from Jerusalem, so it would have been... Uh, reasonable to think that they stayed there and waited for this time to expire before making their trip back to Nazareth. And so we join them now, most likely in Bethlehem. The time of her purification has come. It's time to then draw near to the temple and offer the sacrifices needed. But there was another business of housekeeping in respect to the Old Testament law that needed to be uh, recognized also, and that was the dedication of the firstborn male child to the Lord. 
The firstborn male child, according to the book of Numbers, was always meant to be consecrated unto God. It was to show that God himself was going to consecrate his firstborn for the purpose of the fulfillment of his will and the redemption of the people. In presenting Jesus in this way, they had the option at this point to redeem their firstborn back to them using five shekels. But that does not take place here. They consecrate Jesus onto the Lord, apparently, and allow that consecration to take its full effect, meaning they are giving Jesus back to God the Father for the purposes that he has in mind for him. This is the same thing we saw with Samuel. When Samuel was dedicated onto the Lord in the same manner uh, and left there to be uh, consecrated onto the Lord, they in their own minds have done the same, though Jesus returns for them in his childhood. But by the time Jesus becomes a teenager, he's already causing havoc in Jerusalem by teaching in the temple, which we'll get to next time. And as we pick it up here, we see not only the purification, but this consecration of Jesus onto the Lord. And then we have the two prophets come forward who there in the temple were waiting and praying and seeking God for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was the pleading to God to heal the land from the Gentile oppression in which they were personally experiencing. And it appears that a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna were there waiting for the salvation and redemption of Israel. Now, we need to understand this from a Jewish point of view to fully appreciate all that Luke is writing and giving us here in our text. Let us understand that the Bible did not take place in a Western context, a Western civilization context, okay? It took place in a Jewish context. There are many works being done in academia today that are challenging some of the overreaching understanding of certain words, concepts, phrases, and such that the reformers placed on these words in their systematic theology writing. Not that they did anything wrong, but they were assigning medieval understanding because they lived in the medieval times to words such as sovereignty and redemption and justification and so forth that now maybe not clearly represent the Jewish understanding of these same words. Let us understand that we need to understand salvation as the Jewish mind did. We need to understand the word redemption as the Jewish mind did. If we were to take it into our culture, for example, and use the word redemption or a derivative of that word, such as redeemed, you may say that the most prominent place that we talk about redeeming something is when we redeem a gift card or a coupon at a store, isn't it? Now, is that what they're talking about? I redeemed Jesus, my gift card for my salvation. No, I mean, that's not what it's talking about. And we're missing an incredible amount of information if we simply reduce it to such a thing. Is Jesus a coupon to get us into heaven? Of course not. And so thinking of him and redeeming him in that way would be absolutely incorrect. In fact, it has nothing to do with redeeming him. It has everything to do with redeeming us. 
So we're going to be tackling these things head on, right? Because we're not going to dumb things down here, are we? No, because we can handle it, right? We're Christians filled with the Spirit of God. And if He wants us to understand His Word, we're going to understand His Word, right? And I believe each and every one of you are perfectly, fully capable of understanding what God has written to you through His Word. And so we begin. In verse 22, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord... As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the dual reason for their trip to the temple, to dedicate the Lord Jesus unto the Lord, to consecrate Him unto the Lord, uh, to... um, not redeem him back with the five shekels, showing us and indicating to us that they perfectly understand that he is there for the Lord God's purposes. And secondly, for the purification of Mary. There is a grammatical issue in verse 22 that many have taken exception to, and I don't think that is necessarily needed. For their purification. Again, they, some take exception to this in the King James-only camp. They say that it should be for her purification, which is what's specified in the King James Bible. However, though, purification doesn't necessarily have to do anything with sin, and therefore to say that Jesus is being purified in the sense that now he has, he has uh, been circumcised, he is now 30 days removed for the womb, and he and his mother are now ready to enjoy life and so forth. I have no problem with that because, again, Mary having this child was not sin, was it? Perfectly ordained by God to do so. In the miraculous conception through the Holy Spirit and so forth. So to say that she had sinned and that sin was needing a purification or that he had sinned and was needing a purification I, I don't think is necessary here in the context. And I do believe that in the original Greek manuscripts you will find the word there rather than the word her. I just thought I'd throw that out for you to consider. Now you can impress your friends at parties. But as we continue on here, what is written in the law of the Lord, everything is being fulfilled as it should be. The male child, who is Jesus, is now being brought to the Lord to be consecrated unto the Lord. And a sacrifice, according to the Old Testament, that is specifically Leviticus, is now being offered. And Luke gives us this information that the sacrifice was not a lamb, but a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, indicating very clearly that Joseph and Mary were not wealthy individuals. This was an allotment allowed by God that if the people were too poor to sacrifice a lamb, which was extremely valuable in that culture, they could sacrifice the two turtle doves or the two young pigeons in its place. That was perfectly acceptable. But while they are there, it is interesting to me that they are approached by two individuals, which is truly the focus of Luke's intent for us in this passage, that two individuals, Simeon and Anna, both approach them 
prophesy over Jesus, telling what he will fulfill, what he will do in his advanced years, and allowing them to be comforted, but also challenged by this knowledge. If we continue in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In the Old Testament, the individual spirit, the spirit was given, I should say, individually to folks rather than communitively like he is now in the new covenant with Jesus. Each individual who is born again receives the Holy Spirit and they can receive him overflowing, filled with the spirit. But individuals in the Old Testament, God individually anointed with the Holy Spirit and that's what it is once again indicating here. Luke is telling us that the Holy Spirit is confirming the, identi- uh, the identity of Jesus Christ as he did earlier with Zechariah, as John was being born and so forth. And now we see that Simeon comes forward and he has specifically been praying for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is found in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1, where Isaiah cries out, How long, O Lord, until you comfort thy people? How long will we continue in the oppression that we have? And he's crying out for the salvation of the people. Now there's that word, and we're going to look at it in just a moment. But he's crying out for the consolation also found in uh, Isaiah 57, 18. As a result, he is now seeing for himself the manner in which God will provide this consolation to the nation of Israel, through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. As he was waiting there for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. The Holy Spirit had promised Simeon that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. Many interpret this as believing that Simeon is an older gentleman, an old man, just ready to go home to be with the Lord any day now. We don't know that for sure. We don't know how old he is. But he is satisfied now because the Lord has fulfilled what the Lord has promised to him. It is interesting to me how often we doubt the promises of God that he has made to us. Instead of appropriating them and using them and allowing them to stabilize us in an insecure and unstable world, we doubt them. And that doubt brings further instability. But here, once again, God made this promise to this individual and he now keeps the promise in which he has made. Not only will God keep the promises that he has made to us, but he will also be able to perform those things in which he has promised to us. God is faithful. When I am faithless, he is faithful. When I am weak, he is strong. God has made every single uh, provision for my uh, inadequacies throughout the gospel, Jesus Christ, and throughout this word and his spirit. So therefore, Simeon now is comforted by this. He rejoices in this. 
And he now can say in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the customs of the law, that is, consecrate him unto God, he took him up. Now, isn't that great? This guy just comes up to you and snatches the kid right out of your arms. Uh, you know, I, I see a YouTube video of him, just Mary going nuts, just going in ninja mode at that moment. Do you know that's God you're handling there? I'd be really careful. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, look at these beautiful words in which he pronounces upon them. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. The word salvation there is a word now that we must understand in their culture and their understanding in that time in Israel. Salvation meant to be delivered from catastrophe. You see this throughout the Psalms. You see this in the Old Testament as the battles are being raged, as individuals pray for the salvation of Israel. You know, keep us from losing. And the salvation was the destruction of Israel losing, Israel losing their identity and God keeping them from that. You know, instead of them being totally trounced, he keeps them from that uh, elimination or that annihilation and delivers them and continues them on as a people. Now understand, when Simeon is praying this, Israel is a mess. They had just contended for 400 years with the advancements of the Greeks. Now the Romans have taken the Greeks' place in the oppression upon Israel. Israel's own personal sovereignty had been taken away by them no longer able to crucify, or I should say, uh, carry out capital punishment through stoning on behalf of their own judicial system and in their own law, uh, and so forth. And as a result, they were personally losing their identity. Now think of this. This is something we've never had to contend with. Israel is hoping to always remain a people so the world can see them and hopefully through them see God. But through the oppression of Rome, the people were becoming more and more Roman as they did previously and became more and more Greek. Well, how do you know they became more and more Greek? Because they gave up Hebrew as their language and started speaking Greek. The first way to their assimilation was to annihilate their language. If you can remove an individual's native language from them and then cause them to assimilate to another language, they, uh, that's the first step in blurring their national identity. This is the argument that's being put forward in the United States of America for not uh, taking English as the American language. They're afraid that this will be the first step in what they would say the loss of identity for the, for the national people who come from other areas of the world and immigrate to the United States. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that, 
you know, we had every nationality on the same block. It was a fantastic thing because all of them were sweet people. And it's awesome because our Hispanic friends, you know, when they had taco night, we were all there. And then, oh, well, you know, Mrs. Rigetti, she's not going to be outdone. She had spaghetti night. Those meatballs, oh, you know. Well, and then it just kept going, and we just got different things. You know, when the Scottish people had haggis, well, we were all like, hey, we're kind of busy tonight, you know. Uh, we kind of skipped out on that one, but it was, a, it was a blessing to be around all those different nationalities. They all spoke English, and none of them lost their national traditions. But we see that Israel, losing their language, losing their right to rule over their own nation, losing their right to be able to govern themselves was eliminating their identity. And Simeon is crying out, Lord, heal our land. Give us our identity. Let us continue as a people, even though we have done so much against you. And now this child is the answer to his prayers. Not in the way that he thinks it's going to fulfill itself, but in the way God has prescribed it fulfilling itself. And Simeon brings him, and this salvation, this people that God has brought together for himself will be kept by God, and it'll not only be for Israel, for the glory of your people Israel, but look in verse 32. Luke brings in the promise that Gentiles also will be blessed by the coming of this Savior. The salvation in which he provides will be for you and I also, allowing you and I to become one, and that is, a child of God. And this is what the salvation is rendering, the identity, the people of God will continue through this child who is born. But Simeon also had to speak to Joseph and Mary candidly about what was going to happen next. And his father and his mother marveled at this. Again, that word marveled is the word amazed by new information. They heard something that was unfamiliar to them, and now they are further amazed by this. Now, they were fully aware of who Jesus was. But something that he said triggered a marvel or amazement in the hearts of Mary and Joseph. And undoubtedly, I believe, it is referring to the fact that through him the Gentiles would be blessed also. Now, this isn't a secret. It was all throughout the Old Testament that Gentiles would be blessed through Jesus also, not just the Jewish people. And what he said about him, and Simeon Blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Everyone who is confronted by Jesus is going to make, have to make a decision concerning who Jesus is. You cannot ride the fence in a position of indifference towards Jesus Christ. Either you believe that he is who he says he is or you don't. There is no middle ground. Because if you don't know, then you are siding with those who don't know him. 
So we need to know who he is and be confident of that identity. And that's what Luke is writing for us here in the certainty in which he's hoping to develop in our own hearts and minds concerning the person of Jesus Christ. But in Israel, his own people, many will fall because they will reject him. Many in Israel will rise because they receive him. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He, re, he now begins to clarify that the overall reaction to the Messiah will be that of rejection from his own people. That will culminate in his crucifixion, undoubtedly, as we already know. And as a result, Mary's heart will be pierced due to the fact that she will be there witnessing and watching her firstborn son die at the hands of the Romans on the cross. And her heart will be pierced through for it. But he goes on to say, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. This is going to be a watershed moment for the nation of Israel. They are going to either believe in the Messiah in which God promised them, or they were not. It was going to be the moment that they were going to truly reveal where one's heart is. Jesus said throughout his ministry, he says, you can't have God the Father without having me. And you can't have me without having God the Father. So those who pledge allegiance to God the Father should have recognized that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, the one, the Messiah that he had promised, and so forth. But Jesus saying, if you're rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father also. And it was going to distinguish truly if the hearts of the people were for God the Father or not in their reception or their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to cause that to be revealed throughout the nation of Israel. Jesus is going to bring people to that point of decision. You have to do something with Jesus. And as a result, Mary and Joseph are given this in a blessing form. They are now contemplating these things. But before leaving in verse 36, there was also a prophetess, a woman named Anna, a daughter of Phanuel in the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from the time when she was a virgin. So she was married only seven years. But for 84 years now, she has been a widow. And as a result, as a widow, she is now in the temple, and she did not depart from the temple because she was there worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now again, here's the word, the second word. Salvation we tackled, now we're going to tackle redemption. Paul undoubtedly clarifies for us in his epistle the understanding of redemption, but in the Jewish mind, redemption was the manner in which God saved his people from the slavery and oppression of the Egyptian empire. That was their definitive moment. They believed that that truly birthed the identity of Israel as a nation. And now they were waiting for Messiah to do that once again, to give them a stage, a foothold on the stage of the world to allow them to express their identity openly to the world and allowing the world to actually see and understand that they were the people of God. 
This redemption, she believed, was going to come through the Messiah. Now, redemption has come through the Messiah. The redemption, the word there is used for a slave who has been redeemed from slavery. It is a word that is used for one who has been brought up. He is now on uh, on, uh, bid. He is now before the people. And one comes forward and redeems him and allows him and sets him free from slavery. Theologically, we have been released from the bondage of sin and the Uh, the mastering of the law, and we are now given the freedom in Jesus Christ. That's the theological progression that Paul takes into the New Testament. But we have been redeemed from the sin that has bound us to the old nature and to death. We have been redeemed for that. And not only have we been redeemed from that, not through uh, precious stones or gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have then been taken and we've been adopted by Christ to be one of his own. So not only have we been redeemed from this world through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and been set free, that freedom is now lived through in the identity to know that I'm a child of God because I've been adopted by God for his purposes. However, though, in our text this morning, we find that two individuals, Simeon and Anna, have now prophesied over who this child is and what he will do and who he will become. Explaining the salvation and redemption, not only being for Israel, but for the the Gentiles too. That the redemption of Jerusalem and ultimately the world will come through the hand of of this little child who is just merely five or six weeks old. Prophecy is one of the most fantastic elements of the Bible. And sometimes I think we overlook it or we, we are too quick to dismiss it to truly understand its value. But prophecy gives us the assurance and the certainty. And since we're talking about assurance and certainty, I wanted to bring this to your attention. Prophecy gives us the assurance that the Bible is truly the Word of God. For God says, I see things before they happen. From God's vantage point, we know the Bible tells us that He sees all of creation, everything, from beginning to end, all at one time. This is His position of omnipotence and so forth, and allows Him this uh, rule and authority over His own creation. But throughout the Bible, he has given a litany of prophecies showing that he is who he says he is. Concerning the coming of the Messiah alone, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. We've talked about that numerous amounts of times. But let me qualify that for you, if I may, this morning quickly. I want to bring to your attention how significant it is that one man, fulfilled all 300 prophecies concerning his first coming. And to do that, I want to give you the mathematical probabilities of an individual only fulfilling eight of those prophecies. This is the work that has been done by a great mathematician named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner was one of the great mathematicians in the 50s and 60s here in the United States of America. 
It has been said that he was counted on in many different regards at many different times for some of the most uh, crucial mathematical calculations in our nation's history. Peter Stoner wanted to discover for himself what was the mathematical probability of one individual fulfilling eight prophecies of the 300 prophecies given concerning the Messiah. He chose eight that were very uh, pronounced, but also very uh, relative to the study, and he assigned probability values to them. And then at the end, he calculated it all up to discover what is the possibility that one individual could fulfill all eight prophecies. If you have a piece of paper, and I hope you do, if not, you can write on your neighbor's Bible. Um, You're just going to have to take it home with you. I want to give you the prophecies, and then I'm going to give you the mathematical probabilities that he assigned to these to give you something that you can look at and chew on for yourself. Again, this is still this test of time now, and it's still being quoted by individual apologists all over the world today. But let's take the first prophecy in which he dealt with. What was the chance that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? After calculating the population that Bethlehem had, Bethlehem's always had about 7,000 people, but he conservatively rounded it up to 10,000. He said the possibility of an individual being born in Bethlehem is 1 in 100,000, and that's a conservative estimate, 1 in 100,000. And that is from Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The second prophecy is that the, a messenger will prepare the way for the Messiah, Malachi 3.1. To this, he assigned the value of 1 in 1,000. There was a 1 in 1,000 chance, or 1 to the th- uh, times 10 to the third power, that that could occur. He went on to the third. The Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. This he estimated that there was a 1 in 100 chance that such a thing could take place, meaning that there was a probability in such a thing. Number four, the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands, Zechariah 13.6. This he conservatively estimated at 1 in 1,000. 1 in 1,000. As he further went on, he said, what is the chances that the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah eleven twelve. This, again, he conservatively estimated at 1 in 1,000. The betrayal, the fifth, was the betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's field, Zechariah eleven thirteen. This he found more... Uh, complex, and so he valued it at an estimate of 1 in 100,000. There'd be a 1 in 100,000 chance that this would take place. The Messiah will remain silent while he is afflicted. This was the seventh of the prophecies, Isaiah 53, 7. This he said it is possible, and with a conservative estimate of 1 in 1,000th of an opportunity. So one chance in 1,000. And lastly, for the eighth prophecy, he said, the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced, Psalm twenty-two sixteen. Now, when that psalm was written, 
the manner of uh, execution was stoning. Piercing didn't come until the crucifixions of the Roman Empire, which was almost seven, eight hundred years later. And he valued this at one in 10,000 because, again, the primary method of execution in Israel was stoning. What are the chances that the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced? So he estimated this at one in 10,000. Now you can see that these are eight of 300. And some of these prophecies are more probable than others. The real key comes to the calculation through a system called compound statistics, which I won't get into this morning. Compound statistics will tell us, now what is the probability of one person fulfilling all eight of these prophecies? Now there are some adjustments that have to be made due to the number of populants in the world between that time and the time which we live today. After that adjustment is made by uh, this gentleman, he now guesstimates, I should say estimates, based on the fulfillment of all eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in the individual person at one time, there is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. So that is one in one hundred quadrillion, one of the largest numbers that there is. This is the possibility that one just uh, happens to fulfill all of these prophecies accidentally. Let me give you some perspective on that number, if I may. Say I have a bucket right here. You're going to have to just imagine I have a bucket right here. And it's filled with 100 silver dollars. And I paint one of them red. I asked Haley, I said, Haley, can I borrow your lipstick? And I paint one of them red. Or what color she got on today? Fuchsia. Or what is that? Green? No. Okay, I'm kidding. And so I paint one of them red and put it back in the bucket, shake it up. Now, of course, for me to pull out that red one, I have one in 100 chance of doing it, right? Now, let me expand it for you. Let me expand it for you to compensate for the, for the one chance in 10 to the 17th power. I would have to have enough silver dollars to cover the state of Texas two feet deep and then find one that has been one silver dollar that has been painted red and put my hand into the uh, two foot level of silver dollars and pull out that one red silver dollar. That is the chance of one person accidentally fulfilling all of these eight prophecies, let alone the fact that he filled 300. Where does that take us? Peter Stoner said that he doesn't even want to comprehend that probability. This was only eight. To me, prophecy gives us the assurance that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. This isn't an accident. This is something that cannot be counterfeited or duplicated. This is something that has been historically already determined, and we have these probabilities assigned. We have done the calculations, and that is the astronomical uh, degree of fulfillment that would take to accidentally fulfill these eight things. 
To me, this only substantiates what the Bible has already stated, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, perfectly capable of saving those who believe in him, perfectly able to bring salvation and redemption to those who believe in him, setting them apart, taking them from death to life, to darkness to light, allowing them to experience the new life that only God can provide through Jesus Christ. And I certainly believe that probabilities of this magnitude and the fulfillment thereof give me certainty that this is the word of God. And I can be certain that what he has spoken to us can be read and understood and lived out in the life of those who believe in him. We've only begun the book of Luke and I hope you'll continue with us as we continue on because next week, Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. It's the first scandal of the New Testament. It's interesting to me because they believe he's lost when in actuality they are. And so we'll talk about that next week as we continue on in the Gospel of Luke together.